all yours, brother. You've got two hours and uh, 25 minutes. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you, Pastor Clifford. Good morning. He came very sheepishly down to me before the start of the service, and he says, how long are you going to preach for? I says, well, it depends how the Spirit moves. So I'll leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit this morning. But it's good to have the opportunity to share some thoughts with you this morning. If you were Bibles with you, perhaps you'd like to turn with me to St. John's Gospel, chapter 19, and we read a few verses, please, commencing from verse 14. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I very much like Dr. Luke's statement in Luke chapter 23 and verse 33 when he says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, him being Jesus. That particular statement is one that has been with me for some weeks. I've tried to lay it down, but it keeps bouncing back up. And the words of Catherine Kelly, the author, when she wrote, Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. In writing those words, has she not only expressed her own desire, but she has captured the desires of the Christian church down through the passage of time, a longing and a desire to understand more, to better appreciate what was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And so I find myself retracing steps, going back over familiar territory, re-examining the gospel writers in their presentation of the gospel, not only of the crucifixion, but of the events prior to the crucifixion, and trying in some form of understanding what it was all about. And I find myself asking the question, well, why was it so drawn out? Why were there so many stages on the way to the cross? And no sooner had I asked the question than I answered my own question, that God was in charge, and He had all things planned, 
And everything he said, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, everything he did, whether it was the Old Testament or the New Testament, there was a plan, there was a purpose, there was a reason for it. We may have difficulty in understanding it. Does Paul not captivate the thought when he says, we see through a glass darkly, but one day we shall see clearly. One day we shall fully understand. We shall fully appreciate the reason why that things happened as they did. But as I examined the scriptures, what came out very forcibly to me was this, Jesus reaching out to man. For as we, John records for us in John 3 and 17, for God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This was his purpose. This was his goal. This was the reason he came as a babe to Bethlehem's manger. This is why he sojourned on this earth for approximately 33 and a half years. This is why he embarked on an earthly ministry at approximately the age of 30. He was reaching out, reaching out to man. He so loved the world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus so loved the world that he came as a babe to Bethlehem's manger to reach out. It is not his desire that any should perish, but all should come to the full knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So with that thought in mind, I want us to look what I have termed the stages on the way to the cross. I want to look at Gethsemane. I want to look at the judgment hall. I want to look at that most dreaded road, no doubt, that lay before Jesus, the path to Calvary itself. And we will touch on the cross as well. Gethsemane. John writing in chapter 18 and verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden in the which he entered and his disciples. He had spent the evening in the upper room. They had shared a meal together. He had led them in the breaking of bread. He had spoken to them. He had revealed to them the things they needed to know for the days that lay ahead. He also had spoken to Judas. His words to him were, well, whatever you're going to do, go and do it, but do it quickly. And having sung a hymn as the scriptures tell us. They went out into the night. They made their way to the garden of Gethsemane. Having told his disciples what they needed to know, he wasted no time. He had a task to perform. His hour had come. Kidron means dark water. It is often called the black pool, either because it ran through a very dark valley or because his waters were stained by filth from the city. Historical writings tell us that when the Spirit awakened and moved upon the children of Israel, the kings of Israel would break their idols at the pool Kidron, and the pool would wash away the stain and the sin that had been found among them. It was to this historic stream that Jesus made his way on the night that particular night, he thought of remo the removal of the world's iniquity. What a wonderful thought to cherish, 
to understand that brook that in the natural was used as a symbol. Jesus walked over, for he was going to take away the sins of the world. This garden was a favorite hideaway for the Lord. For when the pressures of life, the pressures of ministry were come upon him, he would retire to the garden. And there in prayer, he would wait before his father. He would be found in conversation and communion with him. He would put his hand once again and freshly into the hand of God the Father. He would be revigorated, re-strengthened for what we've got to realize. He was human as well as divine. And when he stood in that garden, he not only was standing as the Son of God, but he was standing as a man. He knew the frailties of man and of the human body. It was to that garden also Judas would have been found on many occasions with Jesus and his disciples. And as one has said, although he saw so much, he learned so little. Judas, and as I think of Judas, I have sympathy for him. And I see Jesus was kind to him. He didn't shout him down in the upper room. He didn't exclude him from the gathering, from partaking in bread and fellowship and the meal. He said, whatever you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And even in the garden, when he approached him, he didn't repel him. He didn't push him away. And I feel very much in this, this shows to us the attitude of Jesus. He will reject no one who makes that effort to come unto him. Judas, those lips that preached the gospel as they had moved around Galilee on their earthly ministry, going about two and twos, ministering the gospel. Those lips that had preached the word were lips that were to betray the Lord with a kiss. Those hands that had been laid upon those who had come forward for prayer, for healing, were hands that were going to handle blood money. How sad. He was so privileged. He knew so much. He saw so much. But yet he lost so very much. In the garden, as John chapter 18 tells us, there came a band, as King James' authorized version put it, men, officers, with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The Greek word translated band is spiron. And according to Dr. J.H. Thor, this signifies the tenth part of a legion that is about 600 men. This, was not, this indeed was a military operation. It was not a casual arrest by the officer of the law. They were prepared for any resistance. This mighty company had come in search of Jesus. Surely the movement of 600-plus soldiers walking through the city of Jerusalem would have raised some curiosity. There would be those who would have come out to see them. There would be those who would have wondered, well, wonder what's going on, what's happening. Would they be any different than us if we had witnessed such a thing? And they followed. It has been suggested that probably there were a 1,000 people found in the Garden of Gethsemane that night seeking out Jesus. If the fugitive hid, they had lanterns to seek his hiding place. 
if his followers resisted, they had weapons with which to subdue any rebellion. And yet we must realize the Lord was never taken by surprise. He knew all things that should come upon him. But instead of running away, he calmly went to meet the enemy as they made their way towards him. He knew why they had come. He knew also that they would take him. Yet deep within his heart lay the desire to make another effort to lead them into truth. For John, again in chapter 18, verses 4 to 6, he records for us the conversation that took place between Jesus and the gathering. He asked the question, Whom seek you? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And with that, the whole company fell back and found themselves on the ground. They rolled, they staggered, they fell. Even the 600 soldiers lay flat upon the ground. No doubt some of the torches were blown out. Lanterns were displaced. Soldiers lying in heaps, weapons, shields, spears, lying all over the place. What a mess. Jesus just spoke, and they couldn't keep their feet. What a marvelous revelation of the power of God. Well, does the writer in Genesis say, he spoke and the world became into being. The power, the authority, the anointing that was upon him, that he just had to speak, and men could not resist the words and the power that came out of his mouth. What a demonstration. He might have killed them, but he preferred to spare them in the hope that someday they might see and believe and repent. And yet we're made aware that Jesus' attempts to open their eyes had failed, for they were still intent on capture. Hate had blinded their eyes to the truth. And as they regained their composure, as they gathered themselves up, as they relit the torches that had gone out, as they retrieved the lamps, as they retrieved the spears, the shields, the weapons of warfare, and as they got to their feet, we see Jesus displaying and reaching out once again. For John again in chapter 18, verse 10, speaks of Malchus, the slave or servant of the high priest Caiaphas, all four gospel writers mention the event, but John names both parties. Peter wields the sword. One commentator said he was maybe aiming to decapitate the servant who had got too close to Jesus. He misjudged and he took off his right ear. But Luke tells us in chapter 22 that Jesus touched his ear and healed him. One he was mutilated in a split second. He was restored. Jesus manifesting the power that was found in him. We may be curious to know, well, what became of Malchus? For this was the last miracle of healing Jesus did while on earth. Did he, was he converted? We're not told. For the Bible is silent on this sub his subsequent history. 
But what of the conversation that Jesus had with Peter? Matthew records it for us. When Jesus said in response to Peter's action, Thinkest thou that I cannot pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? This was the power at his disposal. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. Therefore, 12 legions would be 72,000 men. Surely that would have been more than ample to deal with any opposition in the garden. We are informed in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35 that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the Assyrians. He smote 185,000 men. So if we take that as a measuring stick, 12 legions, if the mathematicians have got their figures right, could have destroyed 11,920,000,000. And I am suitably informed that that was three times the world's population at the time the scriptures were written. Jesus had an army that could outstrip any earthly army, but he chose not to use it, for he had made up his mind that he was going to do his father's will and fulfill his father's plan. John also tells us that this band that had been floored, this band that had seen Malthus healed, they were determined in their plan. They arrested Jesus. They bound him with shackles and they bring him to the judgment hall. It is especially required by the Masonic, Masonic law that the people who were to observe the Passover were to do so and to make sure they were not defiled. And so when it came to the judgment hall, the Jews could not enter in for the Passover was the next day. There would be no time to address and purify themselves. And so the scene that is presented to us is one of Jesus and the soldiers in the judgment hall, the religious leaders and the Jews standing at the steps of the entrance, and Pilate doing his best to understand, doing his best to pass judgment, doing his best as the Roman ruler to try and make sense of this situation. You know, they wish to remember, this is the Jews, how the blood of a lamb was slain in Egypt and at the same time desirous to shed Jesus' blood. Surely religion without reality is a sham, a fake, a tragedy. As one has said, it is folly to worship God on Sunday if we crucify Christ on Monday. This was the dilemma Pilate faced. And it's upon him I want to say some things. For Pilate went out to them, as John tells us in chapter 18, verses 29 and 30. Paul writing in Acts chapters 25 and 17 reveals the fact that Roman law required three things. One, a definite charge had to be placed against the accused. The accused and the accuser were to be brought face to face. 
the accused should be given the opportunity to speak for himself. When Pilate went out before the religious leaders, he was exercising the law, and he says, what's the charges? For the religious leaders, they were dumbfounded. They were at a loss, for they had no charges. None that would stand up in a court of law. None that they could provide evidence to back up in a court of law. And Pilate, in turn and fro on, as John tells us in chapter 18, I feel he was getting frustrated. He was getting fed up with the whole situation. And in verse 31 of John chapter 18, he says, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. In other words, do what you want with him. I've had enough. I've had enough. Poor Pilate, he struggled in vain to avoid the responsibility being put upon him. And yet we see how great was the grace of God towards him. For Pilate's wife had a dream. She woke from that dream, disturbed, concerned for her husband. She wrote a message. She delivered it to the judgment hall. Pilate read it. He dismissed it. She wrote, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Pilate thought, Women, what do they know? What do they know about the rule of law and order? What do they know about my responsibilities as governor? He dismissed it. How sad that he dismissed a word indirectly from the Lord. God never ceases his efforts to rescue while there is still an opportunity to succeed. God, through his wife, I believe, was reaching out to him was reaching out to him. He was not desirous that Pilate should end in a lost eternity. Can we grasp that this morning? Even though he was the one who was sitting in judgment over him. In an empty gesture, he called for a basin of water and says, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. We know what happened in the judgment hall, the scourging, the mocking, but now we move on to the road to Calvary. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross. Cyrene was an important city in North Africa. It was for the most, it was colonized by Jews. They were wealthy. They even maintained their own private synagogue in Jerusalem, as Paul reminds us in Acts chapter 16. He had came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Mark writing in chapter 15 and verse 21 says, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and it is safe to assume that both sons were known throughout the early church. References made in Scripture of Rufus and Alexander accompanying Peter and Andrew on some of their missionary trips. Paul writing in Romans chapter 16, speaking of Rufus as chosen of the Lord, hinting that he was a leader in the Christian community. It would seem that on that memorable day that Simon carried the Lord's cross, and in so doing, Jesus captured 
his heart. Later, that father returned home with a faith, a newfound faith, which he shared with his family, which they shared also, and they became involved in the things of God. But let's note, is it not truly thought-provoking that none of Christ's intimate friends were available for the service required? The greatest privilege ever given to men was afforded to a stranger from a distant country. But what of the cross? What of Calvary? Well, the thief. I'm sure it's the most prominent, most well-known reference regarding Calvary. The thief on the cross. We're familiar with the conversation. We're familiar with what happened. The two thieves railed, criticized, found fault with him. But all of a sudden, one of them, their eyes were opened and they realized who they were criticizing. They realized who they were, if their hands were free, were pointing the finger at. And what do we see? We see the thief's confession. We receive our just reward. We're guilty as charged. We're paying the price for the life we have lived. We see a statement of faith when in Jesus when he said, this man has done nothing amiss. We see here his prayer when he says, Lord, remember me. It wasn't a long drawn out prayer. Just simple words. But it was a genuine prayer. And Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. But what of the centurion? Mark chapter 15 records the words of the centurion standing by the cross. And he says, truly this was the Son of God. Could this centurion be the one who came to Jesus and asked him for help? for healing for his servant who was ill? Could this be the centurion who had a conversation with Jesus and spoke of those in authority and when the orders were given, things happened? And Jesus' response to his, his statement was, he had never found such faith, no, not in all Israel. Could this be the centurion who, knowing what it was to be a man under authority, was carrying out a task he didn't want to do. He was in a place he didn't want to be. He was involved in a situation that he didn't want to be involved in. But because he was a man under authority, he was duty-bound as a soldier, as an officer, in fulfilling his superior's instructions. We may never know, but as far as is known, the Roman centurion was the first Gentile to be won for the kingdom through the death of Christ. He became the first fruits of a great harvest. Jesus' life and even his time on his way to the cross was given over to reaching out to mankind. In the darkest hour that was possible to imagine, his crucifixion, his Beatings in the judgment hall, and he no, no, in the even in the garden, he knew. Do you know, sometimes we say, if we knew, we could cope. 
But I think sometimes ignorance is bliss. But Jesus knew all things. He was in no way fuzzed out that he didn't know what was going to happen. He knew all things. But yet in every circumstance, in every situation, he made time and he reached out to man. He reached out to the world on the cross and he hasn't changed. He set in motion the greatest plan, the greatest activity that this world has ever known. We are preparing for the Olympic Games in London. There's much advertising. There's much appeal for volunteers and so on. And I've watched some of the newsreels and some of the programs and people are excited. They're thrilled that they have been chosen to be involved, not as a participator, not as an athlete, but just to be involved in the whole program, in the whole event. They're thrilled, they're excited. They're even paying for their own accommodation and their own travel just to be part of the celebration. But what are we part of this evening? Far superior. We're involved in the kingdom of God, in the building of the kingdom of God, in the extension of the kingdom of God. What a privilege is ours. Jesus reached out. He was criticized about who, who he reached out to, but he still kept reaching out to men and women for this was his mission. It was not only his mission, it was the mission he instilled in the heart of his followers. For as Mark records for us the words of Jesus in chapter 16 when he says to his disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to everyone. But he also gives them a warning. For Matthew records it in chapter 5, blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted, saying all things evil against you falsely for my sake. Don't be discouraged. Don't be downcast. They did it to me. They will did it, do it to you. Peter takes up the theme in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14 when he says, If you are approached for the name of Christ, bless, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. On your part, he is glorified. Surely the challenge for each and every one of us this morning, as I was thinking this incoming week, you know, we're in holiday mood. We're relaxed. We're not really switched on sometimes. My wife says, I'm in a wee world of my own most of the time. <laughs> but we're relaxed, aren't we? But yet, what a wonderful opportunity is given to us over this holiday period. The churches are taking up the challenge with the outreaches, youth camps, summer schools, five-day clubs. I heard an open air yesterday. They're making use of the opportunities. But are we? Are we? Statistics prove it's not the big gospel campaigns that has having the greatest growth on the Christian church, but is coming from the area of one-on-one. -on -one. Speaking to a neighbor, a workmate, a friend, someone you meet along life's pathway. We have a wonderful privilege 
a wonderful opportunity. The world's getting excited about the Olympics, but are we getting excited about Jesus and his work? That we reach out, that we speak. We live at a time when everything is so busy, busy. So much to do, so little time to do it. Got to be places, things to do. And we are rushing. And yet the Lord comes and he brings before us individuals. It may be our neighbor. It may be that little lady down the street or someone else who maybe nobody's thinking about, maybe feeling alone, maybe feeling nobody cares, nobody understands. They're not looking for a sermon. Someone just even to take the time of day to say hello, to ask them how they are, to see if they're all right. Are we up for it or are we too busy? So often we say, well, I'm too busy today. I'll do it tomorrow. But you know, tomorrow's no less busy and we keep putting it off and putting it off. Jesus, even on his way to the cross, made time for man. He reached out to man and he wasn't put off by man's reaction. Maybe we have reached out in the past and we have found ourselves with no results. We have become discouraged. We have given up. We said, well, we're not getting involved in that again. I'm not going to speak to him again. I'm not going to talk to him or again. And yet, if Jesus had adopted that attitude on the way to the cross, what about Simon? What about the centurion? What about the thief on the cross? If what happened in the garden had put him off, but Jesus wasn't put off, he was persistent. He was reaching out. His desire was that none should perish, but all should be saved. In the couple of churches I pastored, I had some ladies who reached out. You know, they didn't drive. They didn't have cars. They didn't have transport at their disposal, but they reached out. They telephoned people, not to preach sermons, but when the Lord brought people before them, they thought upon them, they rang them, they said hello. I don't know of any positive results on that. Only eternity will reveal that. They wrote little cards. They put messages in it, just saying hello, just inquiring how they were. They reached out. There are many ways to reaching out. It's not just standing on a platform, it's reaching out. We can all reach out. We are all called to serve the living God. He has a plan, he has a purpose not only for his church, but for you as an individual. And God's desire is for us to be involved. You know, it's not our ability he wants. It's our availability he wants. John writing in chapter 15 and verse 14 has recorded the words of Jesus in which he says, Ye are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What's he saying to you? What's he bringing before you? What's he asking you to do? You know, you may feel I'm too busy. You may feel it's not the right time. There's too many things going on. But when Jesus asks us and we do it, we leave it to him. Paul reminds us, one sows and other waters. God gives the increase. Sometimes we're the sower. Sometimes we're the water. And you know, in dry weather, plants have to be watered more than once. 
We may be called upon to water many times, but when we leave it with the Lord, he is faithful, and his word says, it will not return unto him void, but will accomplish that for which he intended it. Thank you.